PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by OAInService.com. Get information to help your patients with knee osteoarthritis. Find the pain relief they need to get more out of their therapy regimen. Watch a short video at OAInService.com. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel. Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts Podcast for July 2011. This month's research reports focus on pulsed shortwave treatment in women with knee osteoarthritis, utilization and expenditures for physical therapy episodes, effect of pelvic floor muscle strengthening on bladder neck mobility, mechanisms underlying dual task ability in older adults, smoking cessation and counseling, obesity and HIV AIDS, construct validation of a knee-specific functional status measure, a physical fitness test battery for children, the pelvic girdle questionnaire, and the functional independence measure and weaning from ventilation. This month's perspectives focus on motor functioning in people with autism spectrum disorders and muscle strengthening in cerebral palsy. The July issue features an editorial by PTJ Editor-in-Chief Dr. Rebecca Crick. The issue also features an article in The Leap linking evidence and practice series. Exercise for Intermittent Claudication by Cheryl Brunel and Jackie Mulgrew. A production note, this will be the last month for PTJ's audio abstracts and bottom line podcasts, but stay tuned in September when PTJ brings you a brand new podcast featuring PTJ Editor-in-Chief Dr. Rebecca Craig. First this month, Pulsed Shortwave Treatment in Women with Knee Osteoarthritis a multi-center randomized placebo-controlled clinical trial by Dr. Thiago Fukuda, Ronaldo Alves da Cunha, Vanessa Fukuda, Fabio Rienzo, Claudio Casarini Jr., Nilza Carovalho, and Alini Sintini. This abstract is presented by Dave Corvoisier. Several forms of conservative treatment have been the focus of many recent studies in knee osteoarthritis. Among these techniques, the application of pulsed shortwave treatment has been widely used, but the optimal dose and application time have not been well established. The purposes of this randomized clinical trial were, one, to evaluate the effect of pulsed shortwave treatment in different doses, and two, to compare low-dose and high-dose pulsed shortwave groups with control and placebo groups. The study was conducted in the physical therapy department at two large urban hospitals. 120 women with a mean age of 60 years and a diagnosis of knee osteoarthritis participated in the study. Participants were distributed randomly into four groups. 35 participants in the control group did not receive any treatment. 23 participants received a placebo treatment 32 participants received low-dose pulsed shortwave treatment, and 31 participants received high-dose pulsed shortwave treatment. An 11-point numerical pain rating scale 
and the knee osteoarthritis outcome score were used to assess pain and function in three stages at the initial evaluation, pretreatment, immediately after treatment, and at the 12 month follow up. The four groups were homogeneous prior to treatment with respect to demographics, pain, and functional scale data. The results demonstrated the short term effectiveness of the pulsed shortwave at low doses and high doses in patients with knee osteoarthritis. Both treatment groups showed significant reduction in pain and improvement in function compared with the control and placebo groups. There were no differences in results between pulsed shortwave doses, although a low dose of pulsed shortwave appeared to be more effective in the long term. This study had the following limitation. The results were achieved without physical exercise, which could have positively influenced the results. Pulsed shortwave treatment is an effective method for pain relief and improvement of function and quality of life in the short term in women with knee osteoarthritis. On the basis of the results, application of pulsed shortwave treatment is recommended in the female population with knee osteoarthritis. However, conclusions regarding the 12-month follow-up should be analyzed carefully due to the high dropout rate. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Next, determinants of utilization and expenditures for episodes of ambulatory physical therapy among adults by Stephen Mocklin, Dr. Julia Shevin, William Yu, and Mark Zodet. Comprehensive information on determinants and patterns of use and spending for ambulatory physical therapy services is needed to inform health planning and policy decisions. Most research in the literature on this topic is limited to specific payers, age groups, and conditions. The purpose of this study was to examine factors associated with the resource intensity of physical therapy episodes for adults in the United States as measured by number of visits and expenses per visit. This study was a secondary analysis of longitudinal survey data from the Medical Expenditure Panel Survey, Panels 9, 10, and 11. An analytic file was created based on data from the longitudinal data files for three medical expenditure panel survey panels and the annual office-based and hospital outpatient event files. A total of 1,377 episodes of physical therapy care were identified. Variation in both the total number of visits per episode and expenses per visit was examined by fitting regression models to evaluate the effects of selected independent variables classified into four categories, episode-level variables, demographic characteristics, geographic variables, and health status indicators. Average total expenses per episode in 2007 dollars were almost $1,200 with an average number of visits per episode of 9.6 and average expenses per visit of $130. Significant variation by geographic characteristics, sex, and one comorbid condition, high blood pressure, was found in the number of visits model. In the expenditures model, expenses per visit were associated with age or insurance coverage, hospital outpatient setting versus office-based setting, primary condition category, and 
mental health status. Limitations of this study include limited sample sizes of physical therapy users and a lack of detailed clinical information. Variability in the resource intensity of physical therapy episodes is influenced to some degree by non-clinical variables. Next, Effect of Pelvic Floor Muscle Strengthening on Bladder Neck Mobility, a clinical trial by Xu Chuan Hung, Dr. Sheng Mo Xiao, Xu Yun Chi, Dr. Ho Xiong Lin, and Dr. Zhao Yi Xiao. Pelvic floor muscle strengthening has been widely used to treat people with urinary incontinence. However, its effect on bladder neck position and stiffness is unknown. The aim of this study was to investigate the effect of pelvic floor muscle strengthening on bladder neck mobility for women with stress urinary incontinence or mixed urinary incontinence. This study was conducted as a single-group pre-test post-test design. It was conducted mainly at the Life Quality and Health Promotion Laboratory at National Taiwan University and partly in the ultrasonography room of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at National Taiwan University Hospital. 23 patients with a mean age of 52 years participated in the study. Each participant underwent a pelvic floor muscle strengthening program for four months. Bladder neck position at rest and during a cough, the Valsalva maneuver, and a pelvic floor muscle contraction was assessed by transperineal ultrasonography before and after the intervention. Severity index score, self-reported improvement, pelvic floor muscle strength, and vaginal squeeze pressure were assessed for treatment effect. The position of the bladder neck at pelvic floor muscle contraction and bladder neck mobility for maximal incursion from rest to pelvic floor muscle contraction were elevated. Bladder neck position and bladder neck mobility were not changed during a cough and the Valsalva maneuver. All participants reported diminution of incontinence and pelvic floor muscle strength and maximal vaginal squeeze pressure were improved after the intervention. The limitations of the study included the pre-test, post-test design and the absence of intra-abdominal pressure measuring and exercise adherence recording. Four months of daily pelvic floor muscle strengthening can significantly improve the ability of the pelvic floor muscle to elevate the bladder neck voluntarily but may not improve its stiffness during a cough and the Valsalva maneuver for women with stress urinary incontinence or mixed urinary incontinence. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Next, cognitive and motor mechanisms underlying older adults' ability to divide attention while walking by Dr. Courtney Hall, Dr. Katerina Echt, Dr. Stephen Wolf, and Dr. Wendy Rogers. An impaired ability to allocate attention to gait during dual task situations is a powerful predictor of falls. The primary purpose of this cross-sectional exploratory study was to examine the relative contributions of participant characteristics and motor and cognitive factors to the ability to walk while performing cognitive tasks. The impact of cognitive task complexity on walking also was examined. 77 community-dwelling older adults 
with a mean age of 75.5 years, completed comprehensive testing. Participant characteristics were assessed via questionnaires. The motor test battery included measures of strength, gait speed, and static and dynamic balance. The cognitive abilities test battery assessed psychomotor and perceptual speed, recall and working memory, verbal and spatial ability, and attention, sustained, selective, and divided. Time to walk while performing four cognitive tasks was measured. In addition, dual-task costs were calculated. Multiple hierarchical regressions explored walking under dual-task conditions. The ability to walk and perform a simple cognitive task was explained by participant characteristics and motor factors alone, whereas walking and performing a complex cognitive task was explained by cognitive factors in addition to participant and motor factors. Regardless of the cognitive task, participants walked slower under dual-task conditions than under single-task conditions. Increased cognitive task complexity resulted in greater slowing of gait. Dual-task costs for gait were least for the simplest conditions and greatest for the complex conditions. This study had the following limitation. Walking performance was characterized by a single parameter, time, whereas other spatiotemporal parameters have been related to dual-task performance. However, this type of measurement will be easy to implement in the clinic. Two factors, participant characteristics and motor abilities, explained the majority of variance of walking under dual-task conditions. However, cognitive abilities also contributed significantly to the regression models. Rehabilitation focused on improving underlying balance and gait deficits as well as specific cognitive impairments may significantly improve walking under dual-task conditions. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Smoking Cessation and Counseling, Knowledge and Views of Canadian Physical Therapists by Dr. Michael Bodner, Dr. William Miller, Dr. Ryan Rhodes, and Dr. Elizabeth Dean. Physical therapists are uniquely positioned in healthcare to initiate or support smoking cessation. Little is known, however, about their knowledge and views of smoking cessation as part of their practices. The purpose of this cross-sectional survey was to assess Canadian physical therapists' knowledge about the health effects of smoking, their views about addressing smoking cessation in practice, and their self-efficacy in enabling patients to quit smoking. Licensed physical therapists in Canada were surveyed with postal methods. A total of 738 survey questionnaires were returned. The mean age and years of clinical experience of the respondents were 42 years and 17 years, respectively. 79% of the respondents were women. Canadian physical therapists are largely informed about the negative effects of smoking on health. 
Although 77% of the physical therapists agreed or strongly agreed that the profession should be more involved in helping people who smoke to quit, only 57% of the physical therapists agreed or strongly agreed that they should receive training on smoking cessation. More than 70% of the physical therapists reported that they were not prepared to provide counseling. And overall, the level of self-efficacy regarding counseling about smoking cessation was low. Lack of resources and time were reported to be key barriers to counseling patients to quit smoking. The findings of this study are limited to Canadian physical therapists. Response bias and social desirability bias also are potential limiters in this study. Overall, the majority of physical therapists expressed the view that advising people who smoke to quit is a clinical responsibility and endorsed greater involvement of the profession in helping people who smoke quit. Discordance existed, however, between these views and the physical therapist's interest in receiving training on counseling about smoking cessation. This is a benchmark study that has practical implications for targeting training consistent with the profession's mission to improve health by increasing physical therapists' preparedness and self-efficacy regarding counseling about smoking cessation. Next. An obese body mass increases the adverse effects of HIV-AIDS on balance and gait. By Dr. Lance Bauer, Dr. Zhao Wu, and Dr. Leslie Wolfson. Balance and gait problems have been detected among patients with HIV-AIDS. The extent to which these problems are exacerbated by either frailty or obesity has not been examined. The purpose of this cross-sectional study was to compare participants who differed in body mass and the presence or absence of HIV-AIDS. Quantitative measurements were obtained from 86 participants who were HIV type 1 seronegative and 121 participants who were seropositive. The participants were divided into subgroups based on their body mass index. Participants who were seropositive were impaired relative to seronegative controls on several indices, including the limit of stability, sway amplitude and sway strategy, gait initiation time, and gait speed during a fast-paced condition. Participants who were obese also exhibited impairments which were evident during assessments of the limit of stability, non-preferred leg stance time, sway strategy, normal and fast gait speed, fast gait initiation time, and 360-degree turn time. Importantly, the analysis revealed that participants with both attributes were more impaired than those with either or neither attribute. That is, patients who were obese and seropositive were more impaired in fast gait initiation time and cadence, non-preferred leg stance time, 360-degree turn time, and sway strategy scores. This study had the following limitations. The validity of body mass index as a measure of body mass can be challenged. In addition, the validity of chair rise time and 360-degree turn time as estimates of lower extremity strength can be argued. The present findings have an obvious and unfortunate implication. As more patients who are seropositive for HIV type 1 join the seronegative community in becoming obese, 
the effects of obesity and their disease may summate, and their risk for balance and gait problems may increase. Next, construct validation of a knee-specific functional status measure, a comparative study between the United States and Israel, by Dr. Daniel Deutscher, Dr. Dennis Hart, Professor Paul Stratford, and Dr. Ruth Dickstein. Comparative effectiveness research requires valid outcome measures that discriminate patients by risk factors in similar ways across settings. Standardized functional status measures in physical therapy are used routinely in multiple countries, creating the potential for comparative effectiveness research among countries. The purpose of this longitudinal observational cohort study was to assess known groups' construct validity of a knee-specific functional status measure within and between two countries for patients receiving outpatient physical therapy due to knee impairments. The participants were approximately 5,000 and 3,000 adult patients with knee impairments from Israel and the United States, respectively. Differences in patient characteristics between the two countries were assessed using chi-square statistics and two-sample t-tests as appropriate. Known groups' validity within and between the countries was assessed using two-way analysis of covariance predicting functional status at discharge with the following as risk adjustment factors. Sex, age, symptom acuity, surgical and exercise history, intake medication use, and country. Intake functional status was the covariate. To compare how functional status discriminated patient groups between countries, each factor was tested separately with models including an interaction term between the factor and country. Patients were different between countries but had similar discharge functional status trends, including higher outcomes in patients who were male, were younger, had acute conditions, had one surgical procedure related to their knee impairment, were more physically active, and did not use related medication at admission. Interactions were not significant for sex, symptom acuity, and exercise history, but were significant for age, surgical history, and medication use. The study had the following limitation. Although strict patient selection criteria were set, some patient selection bias still might have existed. The results demonstrated the knee functional status measures would be valid for use in comparative effectiveness research between Hebrew-speaking patients from Israel and English-speaking patients from the United States. This article is the subject of an invited commentary by Dr. Susan Horn. Next, measuring physical fitness in children who are 5 to 12 years old with a test battery that is functional and easy to administer. By Dr. Ingen Fiertoff, Arve Peterson, Dr. Hermander Sigmundson, and Dr. Beatrix Varaiken. Valid and reliable measures of children's physical fitness are necessary for investigating the relationship between children's physical fitness and children's health. The objective of this study was to estimate feasibility, internal consistency, convergent construct validity, and test-retest reliability of a new, functional, and easily administered test battery for measuring children's physical fitness. The study was a cross-sectional descriptive survey applying physical fitness tests across age groups 5 to 12 years. 
Each of the nine items in the test battery consists of a compound motor activity that recruits various combinations of endurance, strength, agility, balance, and motor coordination, such as standing broad jump, jumping a distance of seven meters on two feet, jumping a distance of seven meters on one foot, throwing a tennis ball with one hand, pushing a medicine ball with two hands, climbing wall bars, performing a 10 by 5 meter shuttle run, running 20 meters as fast as possible, and performing a reduced Cooper test in six minutes. The test battery was administered to 195 children between the ages of 5 and 12 years from four schools and kindergartens in Norway. Overall, the children in each age group were able to perform all of the test items, indicating the suitability of the test battery for children as young as five years of age. With increasing age, total scores improved linearly, indicating the adequate sensitivity of the test battery for the age range examined in this study. Furthermore, even with the modest sample size used in this study, total scores were normally distributed, thereby fulfilling the necessary assumptions of most statistical procedures. For investigating the reliability of the test battery, 24 children in one class were retested one week later. Test-retest correlations were high. The study had the following limitation. The survey was limited to samples of 5- to 12-year-old Norwegian children. Larger samples in each age group are essential for establishing age and sex-specific norms. These promising results warrant further development of the test battery, including standardization and normalization based on a large representative sample. Next, the Pelvic Girdle Questionnaire, a condition-specific instrument for assessing activity limitations and symptoms in people with pelvic girdle pain, by Dr. Britt Stuga, Dr. Andrew Garrett, Hane Krogstad Jensen, and Dr. Margaret Grotel. No appropriate measures have been specifically developed for pelvic girdle pain. There is a need for suitable outcome measures that are reliable and valid for people with pelvic girdle pain for use in research and clinical practice. The objective of this methodology study was to develop a condition-specific measure, the pelvic girdle questionnaire, for use during pregnancy and postpartum. Items were developed from a literature review and information from a focus group of people who consulted physical therapists for pelvic girdle pain. Face validity and content validity were assessed by classifying the items according to the World Health Organization's International Classification of Functioning, Disability, and Health. After a pilot study, the pelvic girdle questionnaire was administered to participants with clinically verified pelvic girdle pain by means of a postal questionnaire in two surveys. The first survey included 94 participants, 52 of whom were pregnant, and the second survey included 87 participants, 43 of whom were pregnant. Roche analysis was used for item reduction, and the pelvic girdle questionnaire was assessed for unidimensionality, item fit, redundancy, and differential item functioning. 
Test-retest reliability was assessed with a random sample of 42 participants. The analysis resulted in a questionnaire consisting of 20 activity items and 5 symptom items on a 4-point response scale. The items in both subscales showed a good fit to the Roche model with acceptable internal consistency, satisfactory fit residuals, and no disordered threshold. Test-retest reliability showed high intraclass correlation coefficient estimates, 0.93 for the pelvic girdle questionnaire activity subscale and 0.91 for the pelvic girdle questionnaire symptom subscale. The study had the following limitation. The pelvic girdle questionnaire should be compared with low back pain questionnaires as part of a concurrent evaluation of measurement properties, including validity and responsiveness to change. The pelvic girdle questionnaire is the first condition-specific measure developed for people with pelvic girdle pain. The pelvic girdle questionnaire had acceptably high reliability and validity in people with pelvic girdle pain both during pregnancy and postpartum. It is simple to administer and it is feasible for use in clinical practice. Next, use of the functional independence measure in people for whom weaning from mechanical ventilation is difficult. By Giulia Montagnani, Dr. Guido Vagagini, Dr. Eugenia Parnite-Vlad, Danielle Berigi, Luca Pantani, and Dr. Nicolino Ambrosino. The functional independence measure has been proposed as an outcome measure for people receiving pulmonary rehabilitation after an acute exacerbation of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. The purpose of this retrospective observational study was to examine the clinical utility of the functional independence measure after a weaning program in people for whom weaning from mechanical ventilation is difficult. The researchers retrospectively evaluated people who had a tracheostomy for whom weaning from mechanical ventilation was difficult and who were participating in a weaning program, the weaning program group. People receiving pulmonary rehabilitation after an acute exacerbation of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease were included as a validated control group, the pulmonary rehabilitation group. The scores on the Functional Independence Measure Questionnaire and the Medical Research Council Dyspnea scores were assessed at admission to and at discharge from the programs. Admission and discharge data from 56 participants in the weaning program group and 63 participants in the pulmonary rehabilitation group were compared. At admission, according to the functional independence measure, five participants in the weaning program group were defined as functionally independent, 34 were defined as partially dependent, and 26 were defined as completely dependent. At discharge, the mean functional independence measure global score was significantly improved from 47.9 to 62.6. For participants in the weaning program group, changes in the functional independence measure score were significantly inversely related to the acute physiology and chronic health evaluation and simplified acute physiology scores at admission and directly related to the functional independence measure score at admission. At admission, 46 participants in the pulmonary rehabilitation group were defined as functionally independent, 
19 were defined as partially dependent, and 3 were defined as completely dependent. After pulmonary rehabilitation, the mean functional independence measure global score was significantly improved from 97.4 to 102.5. The study had the following limitation. The study was not randomized and involved a relatively small sample size. The functional independence measure can be used as a functional status outcome measure in people for whom weaning from mechanical ventilation is difficult. Our first perspective article is Current Perspectives on Motor Functioning in Infants, Children, and Adults with Autism Spectrum Disorders by Dr. Anjana Bhatt, Dr. Rebecca Landa, and Dr. James Cole Galloway. Autism spectrum disorders are the most common pediatric diagnoses in the United States. In this perspective article, the authors propose that a diverse set of motor impairments is present in children and adults with autism spectrum disorders. Specifically, the authors discuss evidence related to gross motor, fine motor, postural control, and imitation or praxis impairments. Moreover, the authors propose that early motor delays within the first two years of life may contribute to the social impairments of children with autism spectrum disorders. Therefore, it is important to address motor impairments through timely assessments and effective interventions. Lastly, the authors acknowledge the limitations of the evidence currently available and suggest clinical implications for motor assessment and interventions in children with autism spectrum disorders. In terms of assessment, the authors believe that comprehensive motor evaluations are warranted for children with autism spectrum disorders and infants at risk for autism spectrum disorders. In terms of interventions, there is an urgent need to develop novel, embodied interventions grounded in movement and motor learning principles for children with autism. Last this month, Muscle Strengthening in Children and Adolescents with Spastic Cerebral Palsy, Considerations for Future Resistance Training Protocols by Dr. Olaf Fersheren, Dr. Luis Ada, Dr. Desiree Malte, Dr. Jan Gorter, Alini Shiani, and Dr. Marjoline Ketelar. Resistance training of the lower limbs is now commonly used in clinical practice in children and adolescents with spastic cerebral palsy. However, the effectiveness of this type of training is still disputed. The most recently published systematic review with meta-analysis included interventions such as electrical stimulation and resistance training and found insufficient evidence to support or refute the efficacy of these exercises in children with cerebral palsy. Thus, the aim of this article is to evaluate the extent to which training protocols from the most recent randomized controlled trials are in keeping with the evidence for effective resistance training in children who are developing typically, as reflected in the training guidelines of the National Strength and Conditioning Association. Recommendations for resistance training protocols based on this evidence and appropriate to children with cerebral palsy are provided to help guide both future research and clinical practice for resistance training in children with cerebral palsy. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email 
pptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825.